Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode contains distressing themes profanity and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. George Stevenson often visited Burke Crag with his dog. But a spell of bad weather in the days before January 19th, 1999, meant they had missed their usual walks in the wooded area on the outskirts of Harrogate. Lunchtime on a Tuesday was always quiet, and there were few sounds to be heard apart from frozen leaves being crushed beneath the dog's paws as he wandered ahead of his owner. They walked past a hut near the edge of a steep hill, and the dog set off down the slope. The ground was too uneven for George to attempt to follow the route to the stream that flowed 30 feet below, so he watched as his dog sniffed the ground behind large rocks. The animal was fixated on a black bin liner, and from George's perspective, two logs sticking out of it. A faint whimpering sound echoed up from the stream. George strained his eyes and realised that the bundle he assumed was rubbish was actually a boy who was crying for help. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 37 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. George Stevenson knew due to his age he wouldn't be able to get down to the bottom of the cliff and he felt awful about leaving, so he called down that he would be back as fast as he could. It was bitterly cold, but the dog kept the boy company while George raised the alarm. He spotted someone in the distance as he ran back along the trail. George's calls for help were heard by Mark Ashworth, a local who happened to have trained in fell and cave rescue. The men rushed back to the edge of the steep, rocky cliff. Mark carefully climbed down. He spotted the dog first, licking the boy as he lay face down on the muddy ground in pools of blood. Brambles are tangled in a bin liner that partially covered his body, but Mark could see that the child's face was blue and his clothes were soaking wet. It had been raining intermittently over the past few days 
and temperatures had dropped below zero degrees Celsius. Even with the sun at its highest point that afternoon, it wasn't any warmer than two degrees. Emergency services were called, and Mark performed basic first aid while trying to keep the boy conscious. The child could barely move, but Mark could see the vapour from his short, sharp breaths as it hit the cold air. Blood covered his face and the crown of his head, matting his cropped fair hair against his exposed scalp. His thick fleece jacket was tinged with dark colour from blood seeping in from his head, arms and back, which had mixed with the wet soil. It didn't take long before the sound of approaching sirens was heard, and George Stevenson waved frantically to draw their attention to the isolated part of the wood. Assistant Divisional Officer Tim Ralph with the North Yorkshire Fire Brigade was one of the first at the scene. He supervised as first responders clambered down to reach the stream. Paramedics carrying heavy bags of medical equipment struggled to maintain their balance as they rushed over the jutting rocks and onto the ground flattened by the stream in wetter months. PC Steve O'Brien kneeled at the boy's side and spoke to him while the paramedics cut through the child's jeans and shirt. The boy said his name was Ashley. He was 13 years old. It was clear that Ashley had been injured long before he was found. Blood had coagulated beneath him, and it was difficult for the paramedics to find a vein to administer IV fluids because he was so dehydrated. Ashley winced in pain with the slightest movement, so PC O'Brien tried to distract him by asking about his favourite football team. When it became clear that Ashley could not wait any longer to get to a hospital, a rescue helicopter that had been called was instructed to turn back. First responders manoeuvred Ashley onto a stretcher, which was then winched up to a waiting ambulance. The rescue operation took an hour, and then the young teenager was rushed to Harrogate District Hospital while police officers went to inform his parents. Thirteen-year-old Ashley Murray had lived with his mother in Harrogate for around two years. The only child of car sales executive Alan and marketing director Joanne, Ashley was used to making new friends because his family had moved many times during his early childhood. His parents had split up soon after settling in Harrogate when Ashley began attending Rosette High School. Sports mad, he particularly loved football and played on the school team. He was also a massive Manchester United supporter. Headmaster of Rosette High School John Whittle said of Ashley, His cheerful, good-natured approach has made him popular with his peers and staff. He has a great sense of humour and joins to this a level of maturity that makes him very easy to deal with. Both in and out of lessons he shows a real enthusiasm for life and makes a determined effort to get the most from everything he does. Ashley had several friends, but his best friend was Daniel Gill. Daniel was in the same class as Ashley at school, and they spent most weekends together playing football or having sleepovers. On Sunday, January 17th, 1999, Ashley cycled to the playing fields by the junction of Otley and Plantation Road to kick a ball around with Daniel Gill and another pal, Robert Fuller. He told his mother Joanne that he'd be staying with friends that night. Even though Ashley had school the next day, Joanne was used to the group being inseparable and there had never been any issues before. The following morning, 
Joanne received a phone call from Rosette High School to ask if Ashley was unwell, as he had not arrived for his lessons that day. Many teenage boys push boundaries and try to skip school at some point, but this was out of character for Ashley. Upon putting the receiver down, his mother was concerned. Joanne went out to look for her son, and her first port of call was at the home of Ashley's best friend, Daniel Gill. Daniel lived on Beckwith Avenue with his father Jonathan, mother Allison, and two brothers. He told Joanne that he had been playing football with Ashley, but Ashley had left in a bad mood after an argument about the game. Joanne reported Ashley missing to the North Yorkshire Police, and searches for the missing boy continued throughout the night. It wasn't until lunchtime the following day that Ashley was discovered badly injured at the bottom of a cliff in Burke Crack. By that point, he had been missing for around 40 hours. Ashley Murray was suffering from hypothermia and needed life-saving treatment by the time he arrived at Harrogate District Hospital. Leeds General Infirmary was more equipped to deal with Ashley's complex injuries. After being urgently transferred there, he had brain surgery. Doctors at the hospital found 18 stab wounds to Ashley's body, 11 of which had been inflicted to the top of his head. Three were so deep that they had penetrated his skull and the membrane surrounding his brain. Ashley had narrowly avoided death, as one of the wounds was just one millimetre from a major blood vessel in his brain. The multiple lacerations to his face and head had been sutured, but Ashley was still in critical condition with broken ribs, a collapsed lung and severe dehydration. His only source of water for almost two days had been raindrops he licked from his coat. Ashley's parents sat at his bedside and waited to hear if his eyesight or brain function had been affected. An attempted murder investigation was launched, but the detectives needed to hear from Ashley, who was still not well enough to tell them what had happened. Detective Chief Inspector Jim Allen revealed, We believe he had been there since Sunday evening. He was conscious. He was able to communicate. But he was in a very, very poor state of health, suffering from hypothermia and other injuries, and it was obvious that he needed to be in hospital immediately. I find it very difficult to comprehend that he survived that length of time without medical attention and in such conditions. Ashley is just a regular schoolboy who doesn't seem to have had any problems with his home or school life. Even without stab wounds, being able to survive through 36 hours in the open in winter is very difficult. Ashley could not move. He could only hope he would be found. It is unclear how he got into that position, whether he was pushed, dragged or fell. He is obviously a fighter and extremely tough. Two detectives were sent across to Leeds General Infirmary yesterday because doctors had said we could speak to Ashley, but speaking to someone and conducting a police interview are two very different things, and it just wasn't practical to get any information from him at this stage. I talked to his parents for about two hours, and we decided on a course of action that really lets him get on with getting him better and we will continue on our inquiries in due course. It was difficult for Ashley Murray to speak, as he had been stabbed in the face, and some of his teeth had been knocked out. Years later, Ashley spoke with a reporter for the Yorkshire Post. I remember the police asking me who had done this to me, but because of my injuries, it was about 15 minutes before they could make out the words. Ashley named his two friends, Gilly and Fuller, 
and said that he believed they had tried to kill him because of a horror movie they all watched a few hours earlier. 13-year-old Daniel Gill and 14-year-old Robert Fuller were brought in for questioning. They contradicted each other. However, without a full statement from Ashley, the police did not have enough to charge the teenagers in relation to the stabbing, but they did have grounds to search their homes. Daniel Gill was one of three sons born to Jonathan and Alison Gill. The family lived on Beckwith Avenue. Gill had shown great promise in primary school. He was thought of as smart and well-behaved. One classmate recalled, He was always reading books and was very quiet. He was one of the swats. But when he moved to senior school, he changed. He began hanging around with Robert Fuller and getting into fights in the playground. Robert Fuller lived nearby on Harlow Park Drive with his mother Vanessa and younger sister Sonia. Fuller had been brought up for some of his childhood on British Army bases in Germany, where his father Robert Sr., a royal engineer, was stationed. Fuller's grandmother Joan Murthick later remarked, Robert had a harsh childhood. His father was brutal and treated him like he was in the army. After his father left when he was seven years old, Fuller and his sister moved with their mother to Yorkshire, settling in Harrogate. Vanessa began a relationship with a man named Mick Strong, but it was a turbulent household. By the time he entered his teenage years, Robert Fuller was known to the police. He had been caught breaking into a pub to steal alcohol and later vandalised a car. Fuller had also been suspended from Rosette High School a number of times. Describing Fuller's behaviour when with Daniel Gill, a former friend of Gill's disclosed, they would sit around drinking and it was obvious that both Fuller and Gill were taking drugs. They would burn out bins, knock roadwork signs over and set pieces of paper on fire. Fuller was in the year above Ashley Murray at school, but they knew each other through Gill. He would hang out with Fuller in a flat owned by an older local drug dealer. Paul Lawrence was a 39-year-old who lived in Wellfield Court on Panelash Road in Harrogate. Gill and Fuller weren't the only teenage boys to frequent the first-floor flat just 200 yards from their school. Ashley Murray didn't seem the sort to get into trouble, but having moved around so much in his younger years, he was just happy to have a best friend, even one that would use him for money to buy cigarettes and cider. The teenagers spent a lot of time in Oren's flat, from early in the morning when they were supposed to be at school to late at night when they lied to their parents and claimed they were attending a youth club. According to one of Oren's neighbours, Brian Barrett, the boys would arrive at 8am and would leave very late at night. They were cheeky, cocky lads. Robert and Danny were the worst. Ashley was the nicest. He was very polite but what was going on up there I dread to think. On a hot day, they would sit on the roof smoking. Once I came home to find a lad and a girl lying on top of each other in the bushes. Another boy had just been sick. They would catch cigarettes and Robert would ask for cans of special brew. As Daniel Gill and Robert Fuller spent more time together and more time in Oren's flat... Gill changed from the promising young student he had been in primary school into someone who found it funny to chase girls with lock knives. Someone who knew Gill also commented, He always wore this vacant look. I think his mother and father began to despair of him. He never seemed able to concentrate. Daniel Gill had told friends that he could hear voices and saw little green and red men who spoke to him. 
Gill had no prior convictions or cautions, and he was not seeing a psychiatrist, unlike Fuller, who had interventions from medical experts and his school for around two years. Fuller had been seeing a psychiatrist and had spoken about violent outbursts he referred to as epis. Fuller said, When I throw an epi, I start punching and fighting. I can't stop. It builds up inside of me and I've just got to get it out. Fuller had been one of 208 students receiving special attention in school for a home office project to reduce exclusions. He had been assigned a support worker in 1997 when he was 13 years old to see if this altered his behaviour in school. In January 1998, he and a group of friends had attacked a 10-year-old with autism who was walking home. They kicked the younger boys he cowered on the ground and laughed while stuffing gravel into his school bag and inside his clothing. Fuller was excluded later that year for threatening another pupil, and when he returned his mother had to attend lessons with him as part of the intervention scheme. His behaviour seemed to improve, and in late 1998 his support worker was withdrawn. Just a few months later, Robert Fuller was suspected of attempted murder. Once Daniel Gill and Robert Fuller were identified as suspects in the attempted murder of 13-year-old Ashley Young, the police appealed for witnesses to come forward who had seen three boys in the half-mile stretch between the playing fields and Burke Crack. DCI Jim Allen provided updates as the inquiry progressed, but the detectives were at a standstill while they waited for Ashley's health to improve. DCI Allen announced, We have not had an opportunity to speak to Ashley at length yet, although we have got bits and pieces of information. But if he maintains his rate of recovery, we would hope to get a full account from him next week. Yesterday we collected a considerable number of articles in the Burke Crag area, which has been submitted for forensic examination. The two juveniles are now on police bail, but when forensic results are known and Ashley's account is available to us, we would expect to speak with them at some later date. The investigators revealed they were searching for more than one weapon, and when they visited Gill and Fuller's homes, they recovered several lock knives and other items of evidential value. Gill and Fuller had been released while the investigation continued, but North Yorkshire Social Services put them into protective custody outside of Harrogate due to their age. Ashley Murray was slowly recovering in Leeds General Infirmary, although he still had many hard months ahead of him. PC Steve O'Brien, who had tried to comfort Ashley when he was found, had taken steps to give Ashley something to smile about. The officer had contacted Manchester United Football Club and told them what had happened. Goalkeeper Peter Schmeichel responded by sending a jersey and gloves to the hospital with a video wishing Ashley well in his recovery. Still in pain from the first of many surgeries, Ashley finally managed to give the police a statement and tell them what had happened. Early on Sunday, January 17th, 1999, Ashley Murray, Daniel Gill and Robert Fuller had gone to 39-year-old Paul Lawrence flat in Wellfield Court. They spent a lot of time in the dimly lit black and white living room decorated with candles, an ox skull on the wall, and other items related to black magic and the occult. Orans would often perform tarot card and palm readings and tell the teenagers about his interpretations of the Bible while they smoke cigarettes. However, on this day he put on a VHS. 
Scream was the latest movie directed by Wes Craven, the man behind other horror movies such as Nightmare on Elm Street, The Hills Have Eyes, and The Last House on the Left. The first film in what would become a massive slasher franchise had been released three years earlier in 1996, and Orens liked to show it to the boys who visited his flat. Once the credits rolled, Ashley Gill and Fuller went to the junction of Otley and Plantation Road to play football. It was around 7pm and getting dark when the boys abandoned their game and decided to walk half a mile to Burke Crack. Gill and Fuller wanted to break into a hut used for bird watching and clay pigeon shooting. It was locked and the boys couldn't get inside. One of Ashley's friends suggested they should go down to the bottom of the crag instead. Ashley was told to climb down the steep rocky face of the cliff first. Gil sang while he climbed down behind him. When Ashley reached the flat ground, he could hear Gil and Fuller talking. According to Ashley, it was all sinking mud and they were talking about where to stab someone to kill them. The next thing Ashley heard was the Velcro strips on a record bag separating as it was opened, and when he looked behind him, Gil was standing on the side of the crag a few feet off the ground. Gil jumped down and the lock knife he had been holding went into the top of Ashley's head, knocking him to his knees. Before Ashley had a chance to react, Gil rammed the knife through his cheek with such force that some of Ashley's teeth were knocked out. Recalling what Daniel Gill did next, Ashley said, He was stood on a bank and jumped down and stabbed it in my head again, and then he said he couldn't get the knife out. It was stuck. I was on my side shaking. In shock and fueled by adrenaline, Ashley pulled himself off the ground and tried to run away. Stumbling over wet and uneven ground caused his shoe to come off, and he fell face first into the dirt. Robert Fuller, who was armed with a screwdriver, had caught up with him instantly and held Ashley while Gill drove the knife into Ashley's head over and over again until they thought he was dead. Ashley was silent, but he couldn't stop shaking. At one point he heard his former best friend Gil say, Shit, Fuller, he isn't dead yet. Ashley told investigators. Then he looked at me and said, No, he's still alive, and stabbed me a few times again. I knew they would keep on stabbing me as long as I was moving. I tried to keep very still. Gil's voice broke the silence. He's dead. Let's bag him. From the same record bag that contained the knife, the pair took a large black bin liner and tried to put it over Ashley's head. And they couldn't manoeuvre the bag over the upper half of his body. They put it over his feet. Gill told Fuller that Ashley was still alive and to hit him again, but Fuller wouldn't, and they ran off. For almost 40 hours, Ashley Murray was alone at the bottom of the crack. Years later, he would tell a correspondent for the Yorkshire Post, I couldn't move but I was just lying there thinking about how I was going to get out. I thought back to the TV programs I had watched about how to survive in difficult conditions, and I did some things I remembered from them. I remember licking the rainwater off my jacket. I wet myself to keep warm, and I kept thinking about things. The whole time Ashley lay on the cold and wet ground, he fell in and out of consciousness. He explained to detectives, I was dreaming about lying at home in bed, 
but every time I turned to get out of bed, there were loads of brambles there. I was expecting them to come back the next day to see if I was dead. Luckily, they never came back. On February 4th, 1999, Robert Fuller and Daniel Gill were charged with attempted murder. They appeared before Harrogate Youth Court the following day, but their identities were kept secret from the public due to their age. During police interviews, Fuller had admitted to being present when Ashley Murray was stabbed. He claimed, however, that he had no idea that Gill would attack their friend and said he did not know what to do. The story woven by Gill was entirely different. He told the investigators that he wasn't at Burke Crag that evening, believed Paul Lawrence and Robert Fuller had attacked Ashley, and they were trying to pin it on him. Both boys were committed for trial and remanded into secure accommodation for their own protection. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order.
That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. The trial began at Hull Crown Court in July of that year. Entry to the courtroom was limited, as reporting restrictions were in place to prevent anyone involved with the case from being identified. Andrew Robertson QC opened for the Crown by telling the jury about the events leading up to the incident at Burke Crag on January 17th. All three boys had been in Paul Lawrence's flat, and at least one of the defendants had taken cocaine while they were there. They watched Scream and made their way to the playing fields before heading to the nature reserve. The court heard that the stabbing was premeditated and the defendants had brought knives and bin liners with them. Getting Ashley Murray to climb down ahead of them was part of their plan. Daniel Gill and Robert Fuller followed Ashley down to the stream and it was Gill who had attacked him with the knife. Fuller was alleged to have stabbed Ashley once in the arm but he had been instrumental in preventing Ashley's escape and it was the prosecution's case that he was as guilty as Gill of attempted murder for that reason. The prosecutor concluded, They intended to stab him to death. They believed they had succeeded and left him for dead. They got out a bin liner they had brought specifically for the purpose of putting his body in once they had killed him. They did not get him properly in the bag and then ran back up the steep bank. He lay there in a gruesome state but still alive for 40 hours. It was by good chance and good fortune that he was eventually found by a man out walking his dog. Somehow or other he survived and is now here to tell you what those two did to him. Interviews Ashley had given in the weeks after he was stabbed were played to the court. He had spent months in hospital recovering from his extensive injuries, but he still had limited mobility as his left side was partially paralysed from brain damage. The neurosurgeon who performed the emergency surgery to remove fragments of Ashley's skull from inside of his brain testified that the knife had just missed the main vein and that was the only reason Ashley had survived. During the interviews with the investigators, Ashley had been asked why he thought his friends had attacked him. He said it might have had something to do with the movie they watched in Paul Lawrence's flat hours before. In an unusual move, the prosecution introduced the movie Scream and played it to the jury on screens in the courtroom. Afterwards, Paul Lawrence, in his late 30s who had befriended the teenagers was called to testify. Daniel Gill's counsel argued that not only was his client not present during the attack, but the attack had been carried out by Gill's co-defendant Robert Fuller and witness Paul Lawrence. Lawrence was described as a highly undesirable individual introduced the impressionable boys to drugs and the occult. The jury was shown satanic illustrations drawn by Orens, as well as alternative commandments he had preached about from what was termed his unholy ex-Bible. A month before the trial began, Orens had been sentenced to five years in prison for supplying drugs. On the stand, he admitted to providing the teenagers with cannabis, amphetamines and magic mushrooms. When asked about his disturbing drawings and writings, Oren simply explained that he was off his head on drugs. Robert Fuller admitted to being present when Ashley was attacked, but claimed that he did not stab Ashley and did not know that Daniel Gill had planned to kill him. Evidence relating to three lock knives found in Gill's home and an exercise book containing drawings by both Gill and Fuller was introduced. 
The knives were similar to the ones classmates had often seen the accused carrying. The weapons were believed to have been purchased from a shop called Way of the Warrior in Harrogate. Inside the exercise book were drawings of a mask similar to the one worn by the killer in Scream. The prosecutor accused Gill and Fuller of being obsessed with the movie and obsessed with knives. Both defendants denied the allegations. Before the jury were sent out to deliberate, they were told it was up to them to gauge the film's importance or relevance to the attack. On August 6, 1999, after seven hours of deliberation, the jury of five women and seven men filed back into the courtroom. 14-year-old Daniel Gill was found guilty of attempted murder. The decision was unanimous. Fifteen-year-old Robert Fuller was convicted on a majority verdict of 11 to 1. Judge Arthur Myerson, who had been presiding over the trial for the past 18 days, warned the teenagers that they would be serving time behind bars for their crime. Gill and Fuller were remanded to a secure location until they could be sentenced. Detective Constable Simon Mason, who had been involved in the investigation, spoke outside of Hull Crown Court and praised the actions of George Stevenson and Mark Ashworth, who had been the first to find Ashley. DC Mason credited the local men with saving Ashley's life before commending the young boy's bravery. A statement released by Ashley's parents read... No words can describe the anger and disgust that we feel not only for the two boys responsible, but for the evil influence of others. However, we would like to express our sympathy for the families of both. We must now focus our efforts on our son's continued recovery, both physical and psychological. Following the verdict... John Bayer, the director of the National Viewers and Listeners Association, said he would be writing to the Home Secretary recommending a review of the classification policy of films in the UK. There were calls for an investigation into how it was so easy for children to watch violent movies like Scream. On October 22, 1999, Daniel Gill and Robert Fuller were brought back to Hull Crown Court to be sentenced. Ashley Murray and his parents were also present in the courtroom when Judge Myerson began his address. He told Gill and Fuller, From the moment you set out that morning, the death of Ashley Murray was on your minds. The judge spoke about behavioural issues both Gill and Fuller had displayed and accepted that made them more vulnerable to the influence of not only violent film, but drug use, knife culture and the control of Paul Lawrence. The exposure to each had, quote, blurred the line between fantasy and reality, right and wrong. They make each of you a serious risk, in my view, to the public at this time. The judge decided to publicly name Gill and Fuller in light of the risk they posed. Daniel Gill had since changed his account after being found guilty. His counsel, Roger Keane QC, told the court that Gill admitted his role in the attack, but said it was the wicked influence of that evil man, in reference to Paul Lawrence. The barrister claimed that Orans had given Daniel Gill drugs, exposed him to dark magic, and convinced his client that the gods wanted Ashley to die. He is now prepared to give a witness statement to the police about this man, Keane said. 
No doubt the police would wish to bring this man to justice, if at all possible. The judge informed the defendants that they would have been sentenced to 10 years in prison if they were adults, but considering their age and vulnerability, the judge sentenced both to six years at a Young Offenders Institute. Paul Lawrence was not arrested or charged in connection with the attempted murder. In his defence, Oren's brother Mark told reporters, Drugs ruined him, but those boys knew what they were doing. Paul was good to children and would never have got them involved in any stabbing. However, the mother of a 12-year-old boy who wished to remain anonymous knew Oren's and explained to the press that the 39-year-old loner would buy Christmas presents for local boys and invite them to his flat. She recalled, He was polite but persistent, and was always asking if my boy wanted to come round to the flat. Once he told us, play a scary film on the video and let my son watch it. At 10.30pm there was a knock at the door, and there was Paul dressed in a scream mask and a black cape and holding a dagger. My lad screamed and was chased back up the stairs by Paul. After that, I wouldn't let my boy play with them. I think he had a lucky escape. Ashley Murray's family welcomed the sentence and hoped it would bring them closure. His recovery had been remarkable, considering how long he had been alone following the attack. Spending almost 40 hours in freezing temperatures left him with frostbite so severe that he had to have a toe amputated. He also needed further surgery on his left foot and had to wear a splint on his ankle to help him walk. The left side of his body remained partially paralysed. Robert Fuller launched an appeal against his conviction almost immediately. His counsel argued that the conviction was unsafe on a number of grounds, but predominantly because Daniel Gill had made a full admission, and so the statements he made at trial implicating Fuller had been false. Fuller's counsel contended that if the jury had not been told of Fuller's criminal background and anger issues, they might have been more inclined to believe his account of what happened. The Court of Criminal Appeal Justices, Otten, Smedley and Beaumont, heard criticism of Judge Myerson's decision to allow the jury to watch Scream and the importance attributed to the exercise book that both Gill and Fuller had drawn in. Fuller was granted leave to appeal, but his appeal was subsequently dismissed in June 2000. A year and a half later, Ashley Murray and his family were horrified to learn that Fuller and Gill would be eligible for parole in January 2002. At 16 years old, Ashley was still undergoing regular treatment to try and regain control of the left side of his body. His mother Joanne spoke to the Northern Echo. It seems so unjust. The judge at the trial said these two were a menace to society, and if they had been adults, they would have been sentenced to at least ten years in prison, but now they could walk free in just two. We felt we were served well during the investigation and throughout the court hearing, but we certainly do not feel that way today. Now it feels as though the system is not in the interests of the victim, All it seems to be interested in is getting these two people back onto the streets. Joanne said that she would be contacting the then Home Secretary David Blunkett to contest the early release and voiced her concern that Ashley would always be afraid. Ashley has told us the attack came from behind and if these two are freed, then he will feel as though he will always have his back to the wall. 
Robert Fuller's mother, Vanessa, spoke to the press in November 2001 and said she wanted her son to come home. Vanessa revealed that Fuller's counsel was preparing a second appeal and he would be meeting with the parole board in a few weeks' time. She remarked, The only thing that he admits to is not helping Ashley and not telling anybody where he was, and he fully regrets that. I wouldn't know what to do if I saw somebody being stabbed like that. I don't think any adult would, and Robert was only 14 at the time. Robert is actually a very caring person, and he certainly didn't want Ashley to die. He was very concerned about him and wanted to visit him in hospital. I understand what Ashley's parents think and why they wouldn't want Robert near their son, but he just wants to start afresh. All his family still live in the Harrogate area and the people he knows are here. Ashley's mother has a right to protect her son, but I have got a right to protect mine. He wants to come home. Vanessa explained that when she visited her son every two weeks, she could see how much of a hard time he was having and how much he had changed. She said it had made him mature and think about his future too. He's done some charity work painting plant pots and recording talking books for the blind. He's got a few GCSEs and he wants to go to college when he's released. He eventually wants to start a landscaping business. Both him and his sister Sonia, who is 14, have had a very hard time and I believe both of them should be able to get on with their lives. After hearing what Robert Fuller's mother had said, Joanne Murray responded, I would like to suggest that to Mrs Fuller that, with all due respect, she should now be realistic and accept that her son, along with Gil, was only two years ago convicted of the attempted murder of Ashley and sentenced very fairly to six years. I find it hard to believe that Mrs Fuller, even as a mother, believes two years is enough for her son to no longer be a menace to society, which were the judge's words. Ashley's mother remarked that it was only down to Ashley's strength and a lot of luck that Fuller and Gill had not been tried for murder, and the fact that Ashley survived should not detract from the seriousness of the crime. In an attempt to block Gill and Fuller's release, Joanne Murray launched a petition. I'm asking anyone and everyone to sign it to say those two should not be released, she wrote. We are not unrealistic, but surely two years is too soon for Gill and Fuller to be reformed characters. They were capable of this horrendous attack, capable of cover-up, capable of leaving Ashley in a bin bag for 40 hours, believing that they had murdered him. One of the few things we can now do is to register as much public support as possible. The petition received hundreds of signatures by the first week of December 2001, and Joanne expressed her relief when Fuller was denied parole a few days later. Joanne felt confident that Gill's parole application would also be refused, as he had been the main perpetrator. However, just one week later, Daniel Gill was granted early release. Instead of looking forward to Christmas with her son, Joanne Murray said she and Ashley had been up all night discussing it. Speaking with the York Press, Joanne said, Gill has played the game. He said he is sorry for his horrendous crime. He has confessed and he has kept his nose clean, knowing full well that this would only serve him good. Meanwhile, Ashley told me last night that he would now be too scared to leave the house because Gil will be out there. We thought if Fuller hadn't been released, Gil had no chance. We were looking forward to enjoying Christmas. Now it has been ruined. The petition had eventually gathered over 2,500 signatures, but it had not been sent off because Joanne thought the parole hearing was in January. 
Robert Fuller's mother said that it wasn't fair that Daniel Gill had been granted early release while her son was still in prison. Six months later, Fuller was also released. He had only served three and a half years. So where are we now? Ashley Murray moved away from the area following Fuller and Gill's release. In February 2010, a case similar to his own prompted him to speak out about lenient sentences for juveniles who attempt to commit murder. On April 4, 2009, two young boys aged 11 and 9 were almost killed in a prolonged attack perpetrated by a pair of brothers just one year older than them. The siblings had been living with a foster family nearby for three weeks preceding the attack and had led the victims to waste ground in Edlington, South Yorkshire. For over an hour, the victims were beaten, stamped on, hit with bricks, choked, burned, sexually assaulted and robbed. The 11-year-old boy suffered serious head injuries and barely survived. Within days, their attackers were arrested and charged with attempted murder and later pleaded guilty to robbery, causing a child to engage in sexual activity and grievous bodily harm with intent. At the end of their three-day sentencing hearing in January 2010, presiding judge Mr Justice Keith told them that they both posed a serious risk of harm to others and would have to serve a minimum of five years in custody before they could be released. The short sentence brought up painful memories for then 24-year-old Ashley Murray. He spoke to the Yorkshire Post about the attack he had endured a decade earlier, and said, In their minds, when they left me there, I was dead, and they should have been treated as such. But one of them served three years and the other served three and a half. That was the hardest bit for me. Ashley said that he and Gil had been typical best friends. There was nothing in his behaviour that suggested anything was about to happen. It turned out they'd been planning it since September. When Ashley recovered, he didn't even want to return home to his family. I didn't trust anyone anymore. When it's your best friend that does this to you, it makes you question everyone around you. Returning to school to complete his GCSEs was even more difficult due to trust issues he had developed. At first, he attended two days a week with a nurse by his side. Ashley felt that Gill and Fuller should have received longer sentences and their release made him feel like he was the one being punished. I didn't grasp it at the time because of my age, but now I realise they did not get an appropriate sentence. As the judge said in their minds, I was dead when they left me, and you wouldn't get six years for murder. When they got out of prison, I stopped going out for about a year. I wasn't the one who did anything wrong yet I was made to feel like I couldn't go out. Ashley agreed with the judge's decision to grant the perpetrators in the Edlington attack anonymity and recalled what had happened to his attackers when Judge Myerson allowed their names to be published. When the ban was lifted and they were named, bricks were put through their windows and it got quite nasty. I don't think they should be named because that would be a threat to their well-being. They should be punished through a longer prison sentence, not that way. The same determined resilience that kept Ashley alive during his ordeal spurred him through his long recovery. He passed his GCSEs and began working in IT. He moved into his own flat and had a girlfriend. He told a reporter for the Yorkshire Post. 
I remember what life was like before the attack, but you have to get on with it and accept it. Say, that's life, and have a good time. Just two and a half years later, Ashley Murray was killed when his silver Porsche Boxster left the main carriageway on the A61 and hit a tree. He was pronounced dead at the scene on July 14, 2012. In the days that followed, 27 lanterns were released by his friends at Muckle's Bar in Harrogate, and those who knew Ashley paid tribute to him. The head teacher of Rosette High School, Pat Hunter, said, Speaking to staff today who were here at the time, they have all said what a happy and resilient lad he was. Obviously, it was a very unpleasant set of circumstances for him, but talking about him today, his determination saw him come back and do really well, which makes this all the more tragic. Our sympathies are with his family and friends at this time. Ashley had worked in IT for CCI Distribution for three years. A spokesperson for the company commented, Ash was a very special person who had somehow survived a horrendous experience in his early teens and was building a great career at CCI. Not only was he a major asset to our company, more importantly, he was a fine young man with very high standards of personal integrity who consistently went out of his way to help others. A celebration of life was held at Stonefall Cemetery a week later. Mourners were asked to come wearing pink. Ashley's close friend Chris Disk said, He was strong, resilient, and always lived life like it was his last day. He taught me life was a leap of faith and to jump. You might fall. You might fly. I'll miss him and will make sure his memory lives on. An inquest into Ashley Murray's death was held in November of that year. The coroner heard that Ashley had been drinking all day on July 14th, and was two times the legal blood alcohol limit when he tried to overtake another vehicle on the A61. His car hit a curb before mounting the grass, hitting a tree and flipping onto its roof. North Yorkshire Traffic Constable Graham McCulloch spoke at the inquest. I recalled what happened to Ashley in 1999. It seems tragically ironic that following such an incident and his recovery, he should lose his life in such a manner. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? 
Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.